0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I am your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with Dr. Mitchell Schwartzer, who is Professor Emeritus of the History of Art and Visual Culture at California College of the Arts, and is the author of the book we'll be discussing today. Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption, which came out in 2021 with the University of California Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Mitchell. Good to have you here.
2: Great to be here as well.
1: First, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your background? And I'm especially interested in how you became interested in history and the history of art and architecture specifically.
2: Um, I grew up in in Queens, New York, and Nassau County, New York. Um, and, I don't, you know, I got interested in cities and buildings. I, I just think it was something I was oriented to. I think everyone finds out, you know, at a certain point in life, if they're lucky enough, what they really, what their passions are. Um, and, uh, but I also, I think living in New York at the time I grew up, so we're talking about the 60s and 70s, uh, I, it was really fortuitous for me in a way because um, new York had two really defining characteristics in that time. It was, you know, had become kind of the one of the world's great cities. And, you know, buildings were rising all over and bridges were being built and highway interchanges were going up and it was just astounding, you know, seeing all this new uh, really massive construction everywhere. Uh, and at the same time, I would say large parts of the city were being, you know, disinvested in were falling into ruin like the south bronx like parts of harlem you know the areas that white people had left and people of color were living in and so i was really confused by the whole thing you know i was fa- fascinated and confused like how can you know i be growing up in this you know brand new mega city you know world power and at the same time lots of it looks like you know the ruins after the second world war and which my parents had come from, they had come from Europe, they were uh, survivors from uh, Poland, Jewish survivors from Poland. and you know I heard all about the Second World War. That was the dominant theme in our house. And so you know it was you know it was rather confusing and it got me really interested in in cities and what you know how do cities grow and how do they change and, and that And I became a city planner. Um, I got a master's from Harvard in city planning. Uh, after college, and then later I worked for the Department of City Planning in San Francisco and decided at a certain point I wanted to broaden my scope beyond San Francisco and went and got to MIT for a doctorate in uh, architectural history and got a job at University of Illinois at Chicago and then eventually came back to California uh, for the job at California College of the Arts. So that was my kind of trajectory, but I was, you know, in, in all of it, I was lucky uh, to, you know, to realize my passion, you know, sometime, you know, already, you know, already when I was a teenager uh, and then later, you know, after college to actually be able to channel that passion into a professional career, which I've been doing now for you know, over 40 years.
1: So what brought you to Oakland? Why the topic of this book in particular? Why a history of Oakland's built environment?
2: Oakland. Um, Well, you know, when I moved to California the first time in 1981, I lived in Oakland for a year and a half before moving over to San Francisco. And then when we came, my wife and I came back to the Bay Area in 19, at the end of 1995, we moved back to San Francisco. And then lived in a condo for six years and then moved to Oakland, bought a house in Oakland. So I've lived in Oakland, you know, in that in the house now for 21 years. So, you know, you live somewhere, if you do what I do, which is really get very immersed in place, in the place, you know, in places, you know, both near and far, it's natural that you would be interested in the place you live in. So I became more, you know, I walked Oakland and drove Oakland and talk to people about Oakland and over the course of time I realized that you know Oakland had not been uh, you know researched as thoroughly as I thought it could be you know especially the built its built environment people there was no real history about how all of the various parts of Oakland came together or came apart uh, And so I started in the mid20s in the teens like about 10 years ago. I started, I wrote a couple of articles about Oakland for academic journals and then realized that the stories in those articles were were compelling and that it would make sense to actually do a much larger project, which was to study, you know, the whole of Oakland from, you know, its emergence as a a city really in the 1890s, I'd say, all the way to now. So that was, it was the, you know, it was both my fascination with where I was. An interest in Oakland itself and a realization that this kind of history hadn't, hadn't been done for Oakland
1: So it sounds like a lot of the the journey of how you both got into this realm of history and to this book itself came from Just observing the world around you and wondering why is the world like this? How how did I get into this particular version of, of the city
2: that I'm living in exactly? I mean, I I I travel extensively whenever I can, both road trips and then international trips. And I've been, you know, throughout Asia and the Middle East and South America and Europe and North America, and I... Part of my interest is going to cities and walking cities and learning cities and figuring them out and trying to understand how they're similar and different. Like for instance, last fall I spent a month in Italy and uh, long, long, about a, more than half of that was in Rome itself. And I'd been to Rome many times before, but I can never get enough of Rome. And so cities fascinate me. They're the, you know the way you know for a botanist, forests fascinate botanists, and cities for me they're my area. So. Uh, you know, Oakland, you know, in the Bay Area, San Francisco gets a lot of attention as it's a, you know, a famous world-class city. And Oakland really lives in its shadow and has lived in its shadow since, the, since its onset. You know, in 1860, San Francisco, had you know, San Francisco grew from the time of the gold rush started in 1848 1860 san francisco has well over a hundred thousand people it was an instant city it was just like people came from all over the world because it was the really the point at which the ships coming in from other parts of the world met the smaller ships that would go up the rivers and get up to the gold country and san francisco and then sacramento and stockton to a lesser extent were the kind of Places where the gold rush was conducted, you know, where the where, store, where materials were were bought and sold, and Oakland really was not part of that. Oakland in 1860 was about had a little over a thousand people. It was a small city. It was really the transcontinental railroad, which came in 1869 that connected the west coast and the east coast the first railroad that went across the entire american continent that oakland became started to become a major city so san francisco had a had a leap you know it had it was lar- large before oakland it, had, it has always been larger it occupies the more dramatic location across on the peninsula you know along the pacific by the golden gate Oakland is, is on the other side, the east side of the bay, a little less dramatic location, if but still equally, you know, very beautiful as well. So Oakland, since, you know, the, the 1870s, when it started to grow, and especially since when it started to become a larger city, you know, towards the turn of the uh, 20th century, it's been in San Francisco's shadow. It's been competing with San Francisco. It's trying to, it says to itself, wait a minute, we're a little bit larger in land area we have a better climate we have more flat land we're on the we're easier to access from other parts of the united states because you know when you would come to san francisco by rail you would go first to oakland and then you would take a ferry across the bay because it was harder to get trains up to san francisco because of its peninsula location so you know, Oakland leaders kept saying to themselves, you know, what we should be the major city, not San Francisco. We're going to overtake San Francisco. And there were a few times when they thought it was really possible, such as, you know, the, right after the earthquake in 1906, uh, San Francisco was largely destroyed by the quake and the fire that followed it. You know, huge numbers of people came over to Oakland and the East Bay. Oakland grew dramatically after that point. And people thought, well, that that's the moment, you know. But San Francisco came back pretty quickly, much more quickly than people would have thought. And again, was Oakland found itself competing with San Francisco? Oakland became a larger industrial center than San Francisco, but San Francisco controlled the port. It had most of the uh, major companies were based in San Francisco. Population was larger, and Oakland was, you know, found itself competing throughout the twentieth century. Uh, sometimes it won. Sometimes Oakland did incredible things because of that competition. For instance, you know, Oakland has, you know, has had roughly around 400,000 people. Now it's a little bit larger, 440,000. But San Francisco is more around 800,000. It's about twice as large. And Oakland In the 1960s, after it built the Alameda County Coliseum and Arena, which is a a football-baseball stadium and an arena for basketball and hockey, it built these two uh, facilities in the mid-1960s. And for a time, in the 1960s, Oakland had Major League Sports teams in the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NHL in hockey, all four. For a city of over a little over four hundred thousand, that's utterly unique. No city has three of Oakland's size, much less four. And for a long time, there were three uh, major teams. You know, San Francisco didn't. You know, ha- had you know had the foot had a football and basket a- and baseball team, and that was it. So it was you know incredible that Oakland could compete at the major league sports league you know level right with San Francisco. The second area where Oakland really excelled was um, the port The San Francisco had was the major port from the time of the gold rush all the way to through the 1950s. But in the 1960s, with a transition from break bulk shipping to container shipping, so that means that instead of loading items individually and in small batches, you load everything into a container at a, at a warehouse or factory, you know, miles from the port, and you bring the container and you then load it directly onto the ship. And in order to have container shipping, you need great highway access. You need large areas of land to store the containers. And Oakland port was able to expand in the 1960s and afterward to accommodate container shipping became, for a time, there was a brief moment in the late 1960s when Oakland was the lar- second largest container sh- port in the entire world after Rotterdam. And so Oakland took over the shipping from San Francisco ever since. So those were, I would say, were Oakland's two great victories. On the other hand, you know, the, uh, everyone thought, you know, the highway network is centered in Oakland, the BART system is centered in Oakland. This would bring about a tremendous boom in office construction. But most of it went to San Francisco because people realized you could just go a little bit further. It's only about 12 minutes further to get to downtown San Francisco by BART. So that didn't work. San Francisco developed a tremendous tourist, uh, strange piecemeal tourist facility, which everyone knows is Fisherman's Wharf, which is the second largest tourist uh, attraction in California after Disneyland. Uh, Oakland tried to match that with Jack London Square, but it never really happened you know it, it was it always was much much smaller and a lot of uh, you know the attempts to make Jack Lennon Square like Fisherman's War failed so it's this very I th- I would say from you know from the after the Transcontinental Railroad all the way into the 1990s Oakland was competing with San Francisco sometimes those you know the competition would result in amazing you know, feats for Oakland and other times failures. I'd say afterwards, the last 30 years or so, there's been a realization among Oakland business and governmental leaders, community leaders, that this competition doesn't make complete sense. Oakland is not going to be a major tourist venue. San Francisco is going to be the main shopping and office uh, center, not Oakland. Oakland is going to be secondary, although now, with the you know with all this online shopping and online you know work it's hurting San Francisco even more than it's hurting Oakland in the you know since the pandemic so i think there's been this you know a kind of coming to consciousness for Oakland in the recent decades that we have to do things a little bit differently and we have to realize our own strengths uh, vis-a-vis San Francisco. Another factor that plays into all that is that, you know, up until the 1970s, Oakland was, you know, that most of the major initiatives in Oakland were stimulated by, by individual business leaders. You know, Kaiser Industries is ba- has been based in Oakland. And, uh, you know, Henry J. Kaiser was a major figure in Oakland planning. Bechtel, uh, the Bechtels were, lived in Oakland, you know, Bechtel construction, Uh, J.R. Noland uh, ran the Oakland Tribune and and was also had earlier been a congressman and was the Oakland Tribune was a huge force in, you know, in the business community and, you know, proposing and, or rejecting projects for Oakland. Oakland was until the 70s, a white controlled Republican town, even though, and we'll talk later about the demographics, the demographics had changed dramatically, skewing toward Democratic and toward a much more uh, mi- different uh, mixed population of whites, blacks, and others. But the white Republican establishment controlled Oakland through the ni- early 1970s, and they've largely vanished since then. We've lost our newspaper, most of the, com- the, the large industries that were part and parcel of Oakland through the 20th century have, got, you know, have either left or, or moved their operations somewhere or closed down. And Oakland doesn't have that old business elite anymore. And that's probably as well a reason for why Oakland doesn't compete at the same level with San Francisco. Of the sports teams, we've lost all of them, but the Oakland Athletics, they have won the War- Golden State Warriors, moved to San Francisco. The Oakland Raiders moved to Las Vegas. This is all within the last four years. And the Oakland A's probably will move to Las Vegas soon too. So we'll have no sports teams. We also lost our newspaper. The Oakland Tribune uh, was folded into the Bay Area News Group format. This is this large conglomerate of newspapers that covers most of the Bay Area. Uh, It's now part of the East Bay Times, which is almost identical with the San Jose Mercury. They're all the same. They're all pretty mediocre. And so we really don't have good news coverage anymore. A few colleges in Oakland have closed down in recent years. Uh, Holy Names College just closed. Mills College closed and was just, was luckily taken over by Northeastern University. So it's going to survive. The college I teach at, was uh, had a, had a campus in Oakland for a hundred years, from the 1920s, and last year, the campus, the Oakland campus, was closed, and the college, which opened the San Francisco campus in the 1980s, is now entirely based in San Francisco. So, there's been a kind of strange tra- transformation in the power relations, you know, on the West Bay in San Francisco and the East Bay in Oakland. On the one hand, you know, because so the West Bay is so expensive. You know, the Bay Area in general is extremely expensive, especially in terms of housing. A lot of people have moved to Oakland, and I was one of them. A lot of businesses and nonprofits have moved to Oakland, inclu- like Pacific Gas and Electric, Blue, uh, Blue Cross uh, Medical Insurance, the Sierra Club. They've moved to Oakland because of the, it's more, a lot of their workers live in the East Bay, and, it's, and the rents are, are more affordable in Oakland. So you have this kind of shift of people and business and uh, institutions, uh, um, some institutions to Oakland. On the other hand, a lot of the homegrown institutions, like I've said, the sports teams, the colleges, the newspaper have shut down. So we're suffering a kind of institutional uh, lacuna, a gap uh, in Oakland at, at the same time that the city is gentrifying and San, you know, with San Francisco, you could call them San Francisco refugees.
1: So. You're talking about how Oakland has, for a very long time, kind of existed under San Francisco's shadow a bit. But one thing that, uh, uh, for, for for better or for worse, right, that that it's, of course, a vibrant city in its own right, but that, you know, being next to this massive 19th century boomtown and everything has given it a bit of a sense of competition. But one thing that Oakland has always had is its its own very vibrant culture. And part of that is uh, the, the kind of East Bay vernacular. And I want to ask about the title of the book, which, which speaks to the 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 culture of Oakland itself what does hella town mean what does hella mean in sort of Oakland slang and vernacular what are the roots of that term and why did you end up calling the book this okay
2: so I'll start with the town the town part people in the Bay Area often when they don't live in San Francisco and they're going to San Francisco they often say they're going to the city San Francisco has kind of become and even the Golden State Warriors use that logo the city you know, for a time. So it's common to say, I'm going to the city. And in response to that, Oakland became, started styling itself the town in contrast to the city. So people talk a lot about, you know, I live in Oak town, or I'm in the, I'm going over, I'm in the town. So the town became a very common vernacular term to refer to Oakland. Hella, is a term that emerged no one exactly knows where it started you know was it at a high school it's probably it probably was started by high school or or college students you know young people somewhere in the East Bay it could have been Oakland it could have been Berkeley it could have been another part of the East Bay sometime in the late 70s or 80s it started coming into use it's a term kind of like you know, totally in the San Fernando Valley in Los you know in Los Angeles, you know people say totally. And hella is kind of like totally. It's a a term that uh, means extremely, very. You know, hell of a. You know, it's a kind of it it, it um, accentuates whatever else you whatever you're putting after it. So if you say it's hella great, it's greater than great, right? Uh, it's like, to- so similar to that term, totally. And people have started using it. It's very common. It's now been, it's spread throughout uh, Northern California. I don't know, I'm sh- I think it's starting to be used as well in Southern California. But what I liked about it is it's a real identifier of the East Bay and Oakland. Uh, so by calling the, the book Hella Town, You're using terms that are very specific to Oakland, combining the two, and making a statement about Oakland being something special. And that was my intention so
1: much of this book and so much of the story of oakland is about uh moving people around is about transit you talked a little bit a couple moments ago about bart for instance and i'm wondering why so much of oakland's history is centered around transportation and transit all through the 20th and and well into the 20th century now 21st century now excuse me
2: as well it's it's a california story to begin with right because here's a here's an interesting fact if you were in in California, in the late 18th century, it was possibly one of the hardest places to get to from Europe or Asia or other parts of the world. It was really, really distant. Chile was settled 200 years earlier by the Spanish than California. And Chile doesn't sound so close to Europe either, does it? So it was hard the only way to get to California was to go all the way around you know, the, uh, the tip of South America from, from coming from Europe. So it was very, and, and, or, or across from Asia, across the Pacific Ocean, very hard to get to. So, California, ever, ever since it's been started being settled by sailing ships, and then later when the continent was crossed by railroads, and then later still when air, airplanes came about, California has been obsessed with transportation because how do you communicate? And I think the internet is part of that. You know, how does California become part of the world? And so a lot of the innovations and the uh, kind of passion for communications and transportation technologies in California stem from our earlier isolation. And we're still, far, you know, I would say relatively further, you know, a kind of distant part you know, of the world. You know, it's still further, you know, to fly from here to other parts of the world, you know, to get to the East Coast or the Midwest, it still takes a bit of time. And there's large deserts and empty areas between us and other parts of the world. So I think that it, that's, I think the kind of genesis of the f- fascination with transportation. Oakland is an, exempl- is an exemplary, uh, exemplification of that. You know, like I said, Oakland really owes its fortunes to the railroad you know, and, and the sailing ship. It was the place where rail met sail. You know, once the, you know, railroads went across the entire continent and connected New York, Chicago with California and ended first in Oakland, that stimulated development, that stimulated industries, that stimulated population growth. It was one of the factors that led to the barrier growing. Uh, So the railroad was a key factor for Oakland. I think the overall fascination with transportation meant that, you know, Oakland when the automobile started came into you know uh, popularity in the first decade of the twentieth century, Oakland was a really early adopter. It had one of the highest rates of automobile ownership, and several. Uh, it became one of the first centers of automotive assembly outside of the Midwest. You know the. the uh, Chevrolet opened the plant in 1916, and General Motors later, which acquired Chevrolet, started growing those plants. Ford opened a plant nearby in Richmond. So automobile assembly was part of the history of the East Bay. And then, you know, the airport grew dramatically in the 1920s uh, and 30s. It, for the same kind of reasons that uh people were fascinated with transportation because transportation was the way to connect Oakland to other places and I think if you if you if if a place is very distant from other places, transportation technologies and later communication technologies like the like you know like the radio like the internet they become very you know they become, you become, well, we should invest in those, those should become kind of our signature because that's our way of being part of the world while still being distant. So I think that's been a kind of tradition. Uh, you know, the, the freeway, you know, the freeway is not invented in uh, California. It was invented in New York. I, in fact, I grew up right near the early, the first Proto Freeway, which was the Vanderbilt Motor Parkway uh, in Queens and Long Island, which was built solely for racing cars, but they wanted to race cars for 40 straight miles and they needed a road that wouldn't get interrupted by stop signs or traffic signals, right, which is what a limited access road or a freeway is, is. And they built that on Long Island and later New York City built the first freeways in the Bronx and other parts, you know, other areas. You know, California followed, Los Angeles followed in the 1930s with its first freeway, the Arroyo Seco. Oakland did not get a freeway till the 50s. Uh, But once it did, you know, once California started getting freeways, it became kind of a mania. And so you you see a period of freeway construction, you know, from from the uh, late 40s, 50s, all the way to the 70s. And also then the first freeway revolt occurs in California. San Francisco famously leads that revolt. Uh, Oakland does not. Oakland actually builds, you know, there were about seven freeways planned for Oakland and four of them were built. Whereas in San Francisco there were 12 planned and two of them were built. Uh, So Oakland stayed, you know, loyal to the freeway plan even though it was very disruptive much longer. But if you look at the, tra- you know, the trajectory of sailing ships to railroads, to automobiles, to freeway you know, travel with automobiles, to air travel, all of these te- uh, industries were very prominent in California and it, it makes sense because of the, you know, the, the explosive growth of California and at the same time you know, its distance from other places.
1: Well, I want to ask another question about uh, about transit, about transportation, because. Early on in the book, you mark the advent of the electric streetcar in Oakland as sort of uh, an important kind of a signal change in the history of, of the city and changing in particular the dynamic between downtown Oakland and the rest of the city. So can you explain sort of the before and after of Oakland, kind of pre-streetcar and after-streetcar, and why the electric streetcar is such an important change point in the history of this of the the early city?
2: Yeah and it's 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 not just Oakland it's it's all american cities the same phenomenon all cities that were around at that time before the electric traction streetcar so before the 1890s right the way you got, and the way you got around cities was walking and how far can you walk in a day right or walk to work how far are you going to walk you walk about 3 miles an hour at, at you know that's about an average speed so people if they're walking you know to work or walking to stores or this or that, they're going to live within a mile or two of, of, of the of those facilities, right? Already in the second half of the nineteenth century, there became a phenomenon called horse-drawn omnibuses, which are basically like little buses or you know carriages, which are pulled by horses. They're kind of you know, but they can seat like you know ten to twenty-five people, right? And later they were actually pulled on rails. They, they actually were, they went on rails, and, but horses pulled them. And that was a big advance. It was, horse-drawn transportation was a huge advance over walking because you could go twice as fast. You could go about six miles an hour. So that meant the city could expand, right? Because the faster, because urban land is only valuable to the extent that you can get to it, right? If you can't reach that urban land or that land, in an, in a timely fashion, then why would uh, private you know developers want to put up houses or or storefronts or factories, right? You're not going to do that because you can't get to that land, right? With the so now you know all through the, I'd say 1870s, 1880s, people are traveling by horse-drawn vehicles, and the city expands a little bit. The Electric traction streetcar from the 1890s into the early 20th century doubles the speed again. So now one is traveling from 10 to 15 miles an hour, average. And what that means is that now, whoa, in an hour, you can actually travel close to 10, you can travel 10 miles, you know? In 40 minutes, you can travel, you know, eight miles or seven and a half miles. What this means is that all this land around the center of Oakland is now suitable for development its developers are now whoa we can actually develop this land right the all, the earlier way of developing land was railroads but railroads are not great for urban development they're great for like suburban development because they the stations are spaced about a mile to two miles apart which doesn't really work in an urban setting where, whereas the streetcar could stop every couple blocks The rail rail lines also are really noisy and dirty and, you know, dangerous, and it's hard to mingle them with urban streets. They have to really have a separate, they need a separate right-of-way. So they weren't as suitable for urban development as um, streetcars. What the street, street streetcars could go on any street. They could be built on any street, and they could be pulled up small hills as well. Horses couldn't do that. And Oakland, you know, the topography of Oakland basically goes from the the bay flats and and a large flat area, you know, inland from the bay, and then a series of gentle hills called the lower hills, and then more precip, really precipitous hills, the upper hills, and you go from sea level to 1700 feet, you know, in the space of about less than 10 miles. So streetcars enabled the development both outward and also into the lower hills from the 1890s onward. And what that meant is that, you know, businesses and individuals could now move out of the congested inner parts of the city, which was the downtown and West Oakland where the railroad ended. They could move out, and the first people to move out were industries. The first, uh, you know, industries wanted larger plots of land, to expand their facilities, to modernize. Why, why, you know, they couldn't fit them into the crowded areas of, you know, near the downtown. So the streetcar lines allowed the industries to move further out, to get people to work, you know, workers could now get to them in a timely fashion. And likewise, residences. And, you know, residential areas were built all around Oakland based on their access to streetcars, which was about 400 feet. 400 feet from the streetcar, uh, you know, and then later about a quarter mile was a really great formula. You know, people were willing to walk that distance to the streetcar line along the streetcar lines stores, you know, migrated because those were, if people are walking there and then they would do their shopping, let's say on the way home or on the way to something, intersections were great locations for commerce you had two streetcar lines meeting and people often changed streetcars and then walked around that area and got their, you know, bought their whatever they needed. So streetcars uh, allowed for the outward expansion of Oakland and, and, and all American cities. They also, in the case of Oakland, they were, and the East Bay at large, they were not built like, let's say, by a governmental agency that said, "Well, we should build them here, here, here to service certain types of needs." It wasn't like that at all. They were a private initiative. There were many competing companies that were later assembled by one company, which became known as the Key System. Uh, and the the goal of the streetcar was to let, run a streetcar out to a certain area that was comp- was still agricultural, or or, or wild, you know, like it was forest or, or um, shrubland or it was orchards, to run a streetcar out to that area. And by doing that, you, the, the, the actual company that did that also, prior to doing that, bought the land around the streetcar. They invested in those areas that they knew they were going to run their streetcars to And what made money for them was not the fare, which was $0.05, and it stayed that way for a long time. What made money for the entrepreneurs were the sales of the land for development, for building development. So the streetcars were an agent for building development, and the same companies that actually bought the land, subdivided it, sold it to builders, were the same companies that were actually building the streetcars so they went it went hand in hand and you had a lot of redundant lines for a time because they were competing companies and it wasn't done in a fashion you know it was done to to build the city outward not to service an existing city so that's kind of the, the history of the streetcar it, it you know streetcars were reached their peak i'd say in the 1920s and by the late by the sec- after the second world war uh for a variety of reasons it, uh, it, uh The streetcar companies were were sold and uh, they went out of business uh, and stopped running. And automobiles completely took over.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about next. One one more kind of transportation-related question because the advent of the automobile is going to be another uh, uh, invention that's going to kind of prefigure, it's going to re- reconfigure the, the geography, um, the urban layout of... Oakland. So how does this happen? How does the car, and particularly people's desire to accommodate car culture, like uh, city planners in Oakland, for instance, and and individuals who just want to be able to accommodate their own automobile and and getting getting to work and everything, how is this going to change city streets? How is this going to change neighborhoods? How is this going to change demographics? In the book, you talk about congestion and parking for two examples, but the car is going to kind of change everything in Oakland and throughout the United States as
2: well. Yep. Uh, and it and it you know and it comes in very you know the streetcar comes in in the 1890s the car already is getting popular by the teens you know it's not that big a gap and it start and by the 20s they're competing head on with each other right and by the I would say by the 30s and 40s the automobile has triumphed over the over the car over the streetcar why did the automobile triumph it's a lot of reasons right one it's Certainly more convenient to own your if you can afford your an automobile it's more convenient it, you can get you can go almost anywhere because any street is going to accommodate the automobile whereas street cars only ran where their where, you know, where their rails and overhead wires ran. It was hard for harder for street cars because on the streets themselves were a governmental Responsibility to maintain the streets, but not the rails and overhead wires and electrical system uh, uh, st- Stations that powered the streetcars that was the domain of the private company So streetcars were at a disadvantage vis-a-vis automobiles, right? They you know, it was hard. They had to maintain all that infrastructure whereas the city maintained the automobile infrastructure the roads which were later paid for by a gas tax in part so there was a kind of financial difference, but there was also the difference—the uh, difference of uh, convenience that and kind of modernity, right? It was—it was more prog- progress. It meant progress. If you owned an automobile, you could go to a much wider range of areas than you could with a streetcar. You could carry everything in the automobile, which was really useful. You didn't have to lug it yourself. So for shopping and bring, you know transporting objects it's extremely advantageous you could go to many different places on your trip you know and stop and start and stop and start so for a whole host of reasons automobiles embodied convenience and later when freeways were built you could travel around the whole region rather quickly whereas you know the streetcars were much much slower and there wasn't a rapid we did not have a what we call a heavy rail, a rapid transit system like a subway system, until BART, which doesn't open until the ni- early nineteen seventies, uh, whereas you know Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago had systems in the early twentieth century. We didn't. So, for for a lot of reasons, the automobile you know was seen as this tremendous you know tremendously superior to streetcars, and the government aided you know assisted that. You know when the uh, Posey Tube was built, which is the first underwater uh, tunnel connecting Oakland with Alameda, which is uh, an island right across from Oakland. For the first time in a public infrastructure project, did not allow streetcars. It did not provide lines for rail. It only accommodated automobiles. This was in 1928. When the Bay Bridge was built in 1936. And then the Golden Gate Bridge in 1937. The Golden Bre- Gate Bridge had no provision for streetcars. The Bay Bridge had on the lower deck there were there were uh, two lanes were devoted to streetcars. But but you know by and large, you know, the, the, all of this new infrastructure that's being built with governmental assistance, you know, freeways, bridges, tunnels. it's you know they're they're planning for automobiles, not for a rail. Uh, For a long time. So that was another advantage of automobiles. So, you know There's a lot of reasons to explain the triumph of automobiles in the United States, but you know those are some of them Uh, Obviously they caused a lot of issues with the existing urban fabric, right? The cities were not built to accommodate automobiles and where you know you, you drive to a neighborhood commercial shopping district and where do you put your car and the only place to put the car initially was right on the street, right? But that that often conflicted with streetcar lines. Uh, there weren't enough on-street parking spots, especially downtown. So people start experimenting with parking lots and then later parking garages. But in order to build those, you have to tear down buildings and acquire land. So the automobile, you know, you know, the streets were narrow and it was and, and one of the big projects of the 20th century in Oakland and other cities was to widen streets to actually let's say tear out one side of an entire street for blocks and blocks and blocks and widen the street double its width in order to accommodate more automobile lanes and parking spots uh, so the automobile completely changes the nature of, of cities. If you think about prior to the automobile in that brief streetcar era, what you, you know, you lived in your house or your apartment building, you stepped outside, you walked to a streetcar line, depending how far it was, but never it wasn't usually more than a quarter mile away. Uh, you got on a streetcar and you went to another another uh, commercial district or, or, or a industry or business, uh, and then you came back, you know, you maybe took two streetcars or maybe three in the worst case. That's how you got around by taking streetcars and by walking in the automobile era, you immediately leave your own personal lot and you go wherever you want in the entire Bay area yourself by car on these new infrastructural paths, the freeway system and all the bridges and tunnels that were built. So the the it it changes people's complete conception of what a city is. Instead of bec- being a walking and mass transit city, it becomes an individual automotive city where you're sequestered in your own car. You're not you know interacting with people either by you know walking on the street or sitting in the you know standing or sitting in the streetcar. You're actually alone in your in your vehicle so it changes your relationship both to your neighborhoods around you to the city around you that's proximate it expands you to the you know much wider region but at the same time it isolates you and atomizes you and i think if you look at american cities if you travel around the world one of the first things you start to notice going to let's say europe going to the asian the great asian cities the middle eastern cities uh south america you know you start to notice that the streets are packed with people. There's, you know, there's a lot of activity. People are going outside. They're going outside to shop, but they're also going outside to socialize. They're going outside to get somewhere and they're doing it often by walking and taking transit options. And that's not the case in much much of North America. And I think it, it results from this early adoption and radical adoption of automotive transportation Uh, a kind of proclivity against mass transit and rail. You know, if you look at the deterioration of our rail system over the course of the 20th century, uh, you know, we're the only uh, advanced industrial society that does not have rapid rail, which, you know, to this point, California is trying to build a system and it's taking forever and it's costing a lot and people are, you know, confused by the whole matter. That's not the case in Japan or China or Europe, you know. So uh, it's... It is a, it is, it is part and I think it's one of the kind of characteristics of our, of our consciousness, you know, it result, this automotive orientation, it results in, you know, most American metropolises and the San Francisco Bay Area is, is you know, an example of that are, you know, it consists largely of very huge areas occupied by single family homes and automotive shopping centers you know, malls and other shopping centers, and office parks. This is where most people in California and the East Bay uh, live, work, and recreate and shop. You know, they, they, don't, uh, they don't have the kind of earlier, they don't walk to work or they don't take mass transit that often or buses. You know, they're, they're living a, in, within a car culture that's extremely spread out. And, and dispersed, and that it, it's a different kind of culture. And I think it also is an explanation for why Americans are taking so rapidly to online shopping and online work, you know, because the, the, it, it just is another step in that direction, right? You, you know, you're, you're, used to, you're used to kind of existing between your own home and whatever destination you choose to go to via the automobile. Now you can exist in your own home and you can reach other destinations via the cables of the internet, via Zoom work or via Amazon online shopping or something similar. So it's an extension of that tendency and I, we're leading the world in that regard as well of abandoning shopping districts, abandoning office districts. San Francisco downtown is the, it has had the largest loss of office tenants of any major american city possibly in part because of our orientation toward online you know this is the Silic- you know we're silicon valley uh we're oriented toward this new technology and for that reason people have abandoned you know they resist going to work they'd rather work from home they'd rather shop from home and i think that if, if there's really a seamless connection between the automotive century and the internet century that has followed it. You were
1: talking earlier about um, the importance of sports and and recreation to the urban fabric of of Oakland. And I was kind of thinking, you know, growing up as I did a a sports-crazed kid in the 90s, I always thought it was kind of funny when I was when I was a kid that you know the 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 cities that always got multiple sports teams were you know New York City and Chicago and Los Angeles and Oakland was always on that list as well that got multiple teams in any given league you know Oakland with its as you said two football teams for a long time two baseball teams for a long time and Oakland always kind of or the the Bay Area and and Oakland in particular kind of fit weirdly in in my sort of youth geography of, of sports and as you explain in the book This was by design, right? That urban improvement in the middle decades of the 20th century in Oakland revolved around recreational spaces, around parks, and around sports venues that promised to transform the city for the better. And as you explain in the book, in some ways they were successful. In some ways, the projects got a lot of stuff right, but they also ended up reflecting a lot of the inequalities that were kind of baked into Oakland city planning. So, could you talk a bit about how parks and recreational spaces in general were part of this kind of mid-century? uh, urban improvement drive
2: yeah I mean if you think back I, I mentioned earlier that the, the the movers and shakers who were behind parks and behind uh, rec, you know civic spaces the museums etc they were the business elite and at time you know so when they planned things they planned things for their vision of a city which didn't include you know the actual reality of what who lived in the city. And let me give you, a, a, a let's talk a little about demographics. Oakland really goes through a, tre- a tremendous demographic transformation, two demographic transformations in the, in the 20th century. Up until 1940, and people are shocked when I tell them this, Oakland was a largely white city, 95% or so white. You know, today it's about 27% white. Okay, that's a big difference, right, from 95 to 27. And what happened is that there were two big eras of migration to Oakland. One started with the Second World War and and lasted until around 1980. So for about 40 years, from 1940 to 1980, there was an enormous migration of black people from the American South, primarily Louisiana, Texas and Arkansas, to California, to places like Oakland, Richmond, Los Angeles, San Francisco that had war industries. The enormous growth of war industry during the Second World War brought, there was a a need for labor and the labor came from the American South. And it was primarily, it was some white people came, but more, a larger percentage of the labor was also black people. And so Oakland went from being around 2% a little over 2% black in 1940 to over 48% black in 1980 that's a big change. The other big demographic change started in the 70s. In 1965 an immigration law was passed that changed the whole nature of where of who could come to the United States from the 20s to the 60s. Immigration basically prohibited almost anyone from getting to the United States. You had to come from countries that had a large... Perc- it was all linked to the percentage of, of people from those countries that were already in the United States, which were mostly Northern and Western Europe. So, And, th- and those places weren't sending immigrants. So East Asian immigrants and immigrants from other parts of the world were basically f- couldn't come to the U.S. And there was a tradition of this in California of... of uh, excluding immigrants from other places even before the 20s the chinese exclusion act goes back to the 1880s the 1965 immigration act law changed all that and allowed for since this it you know, really starts ramping up in the 70s but you feel it by toward the end of the century huge immigration to the bay area and to oakland from east asia primarily and latin america you know, to the point now, to the point where by the early 21st century, Oakland had the largest population groups. It had, they were all almost equal. You know, l- l- the Latino population, the black population, the white population and the Asian populations, they were all really large. That was, like I said, up, up in, you know, up through the you know, late 19th century and into the early 20th century, this it was largely a white city, Right. So it, Oakland goes from being a white city to being a white and black city largely with smaller Asian and Latino populations to then becoming a really mixed city where I think in 2020, the recent census, as I said, whites are about 27%, Latinos are about 28, blacks are around 20, and uh, 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 Asians are around 18 or 19. So you're talking very similar uh, sizes of all of the different groups what have what, what the the disconnect in the mid century and you see this disconnect on all levels in, in terms of civic buildings in terms of parks in terms of sports teams in terms of housing the disconnect of the mid 20th century is that you have a white elite a white republican business elite that does not recognize the transformation does not like the transformation they like the incoming workers that you know the in, in The industry leaders appreciate that. But other than that, they provide very little for the new people coming in. So for instance, as the city became almost half black, blacks were still prohibited from buying houses and living in large parts of Oakland. They couldn't live almost anywhere. They were confined initially to the West Oakland area. And then gradually, slowly, and only because whites were leaving to the suburbs, Blacks start moving to North Oakland and then eventually to East Oakland. And blacks could not move to the suburbs in in the Bay Area in in the 1950s or the 1960s, and only started moving really to the suburbs in larger numbers in the 70s and afterwards. And the reasons were not only individual decisions, there were a whole set of uh, restrictions, and they really, one were restrictive covenants, which covered an individual property or an entire subdivision which literally said legally that the only people who could reside there were people of the Caucasian race or that blacks, Asians, Latinos, etc., could not live there. They actually stated that. You could not buy a house, you could not rent a property in those districts. And this, we're talking almost all of the well-off districts in Oakland were like that and other areas. Then the government gets involved in the 1930s The federal government, which is one of the great ironies, people are often shocked. This is the Roosevelt administration, the New Deal. They get involved in segregation because, you know, a huge part of the coalition that supported Roosevelt were Southern white Democrats. And they prohibit new subdivisions in the suburbs from being multiracial. So they actually, the federal government practices segregation from the 30s all the way into the 60s for over 30 years. So you've got individual businesses and realtors practicing segregation. You've got the federal government practicing segregation, and then you have afterward, even you know, even after the federal housing acts of the 68, 72, 73, 74, which. Dismantled legal segregation, you have individual towns practicing segregation and individual areas be- through zoning by saying, "Okay, we're going to allow you know the only houses you can build are two thousand square feet and up, or the only lots you can uh, subdivide have to be two acres or five acres or ten acres." So you you raise the price points dramatically, and by doing that you guarantee a, you know, a largely white clientele, or, or, and later Asian. So segregation has been a huge problem throughout the United States uh, and in Oakland, uh, and uh, that disconnect that you had all through the 20th century, that you know, these bi- white business leaders are planning for a city that existed before the Second World War that was almost all white. That's who they're thinking about when they talk about progress. And they're neglecting and not paying attention whatsoever to the housing needs of the new black residents. The new black residents cannot get jobs with the government, they can't get jobs with the newspaper, they can't get jobs with the department at the department stores or at restaurants. The only, the, their major sources of employment are either industrial jobs or service jobs, servicing housing, uh, domestic service. And, and, then, and this results in the underground economy that gr- grows up from the 60s onward uh, that has you know, a large criminal side. This, if, you, if you deny employment to a, you know, a huge segment of the population, what's going to happen? That population is going to have to find a means to survive in other ways. And you look at the crime rates in Oakland. Up until 1960, they weren't that high. They shoot up through the 60s and then ever afterward. And it's a result of this legacy of discrimination that leads to an underground criminal economy. Uh, Schools are another area of unequal services. And then the areas you mentioned, parks and civic buildings, Uh, even, even if you go back, it's even deeper than race. If you go back to the early 20th century, there was a plan in Oakland to build a large park like Golden Gate Park in San Francisco or like Central Park in New York. And it failed because the mayor at the time, this Republican mayor, f- saw no need to use public funds for anything but transportation that would benefit the automobile. That was his you know, only interest. And so it, using public money for acquiring parks, no. And so Oakland never acquired a large park in the flatlands. We don't have a large uh, central park that is easily accessible. And that goes back to that era. And then later, you know, when you look at the initiative, the civic initiatives, you know, I, I'm not, I think the, the sports teams, those were initiatives, you know, that ended up benefiting everyone, but were, you know, were probably aimed at the white population too. The symphony got, you know, we uh, Oakland elites uh, financed the transformation of a movie palace into a symphony hall. It's the Paramount Theater that was done for the, you know, with white, you know, kind of the white population in mind, the Oakland Museum was uh, a conglomeration of three small, tiny museums that were built, uh, were combined, and, and a brand new, wonderful facility was built in the 1960s, and that too was aimed at the you know elite, affluent white population. So, what's happened in Oakland is that the you know the the, the population changed, but the pol but the orientation of business and government took much long, longer to change. Uh, and by the time they started you know, and started to recognize that they're ser- they need to serve all people in Oakland, not just the affluent white population. Oakland had already had lost most of its industry and, and became really a much poorer city. Uh, that's something we haven't talked about yet, I should mention that you know, what supported Oakland, from, through, from the late 19th all the way into the late 20th century was an industrial employment economy. You had automotive assembly plants, as I, I think I mentioned, you had canneries, you had shipbuilding, you had uh, gr- grains, uh, shredded wheat, uh, Kellogg's, you had electronics, General Electric had three plants in the city of Oakland, Westinghouse had a plant. You know, Oakland was an industrial center and provided jobs for, you know, its population. That, those jobs from the early 60s to the 90s almost vanished. They, the industrial employment today is, is a shadow of what it was 30 years, 30, 40 years ago. So, you know, at the, and that's the tragedy that for the black population and then the later uh, Latino and Asian populations that migrate to Oakland is they arrive after, you know, that great, you know, after the industrial economy has cratered and deindustrialization has taken hold. And so since then it's been, you know, the, the, the better jobs are jobs, you know, there's the jobs used to be, there were well-paying blue collar jobs throughout Oakland. Nowadays, there are really well-paying white-collar jobs, supremely well-paying, and then poorly paying service jobs, and so a lot of people of color are stuck in the poorly paying service jobs, and that leads to the whole housing crisis as well. That you know, the planning for housing was not done for the the for the working class, or the even the middle class, and increasing. You know, I'll give and I'll give you an example on that. If, if you were here in 1920 in Oakland and you looked at what was the housing that was being built, it was being built for working class people who had employment in the factories, it was being built on, in other areas for middle class people who owned businesses, and then it was also being built for the upper class, you know, the owners, of the, you know, the kind of titans of industry. So there were, housing was built across the spectrum. If you look at the post-war period, no more working class housing is built. Instead, there's public housing. Public housing now is built for poorer people, you know, from the 40s into the 70s. If you look at the period from the 80s to now, public housing largely is, there's almost no public housing built. And what's being built is housing for the upper class solely. For the, I would say, the only people who can afford market rate housing in Oakland or San Francisco and much of the Bay Area are people who are in the top 20% in terms of wealth and income. So, the, Whereas the city 100 years ago provided employment, housing and other services for a large percentage of its population, which at that time was white, if you look at the city now, the benefits are really oriented to a much smaller percentage of the population who are very wealthy, and a large and you have a kind of very a large struggling group who are basically trying to hold on, how, you know, and and being displaced and don't really see themselves as having a future in the inner Bay Area. The same people who move from San Francisco to get to, you know to Oakland for you know less expensive housing, or cheaper rents are finding out that Oakland is not that far behind San Francisco in those regards and they're moving for, you know out of state entirely you know to Texas and to other parts of the country that are less expensive so that's the kind of this is this kind of a uh, bifurcation and a, a, a change in you know um, the degree to which government and business sees its role and act on that role to service all people in the area. That's really hasn't been happening lately.
1: Well, that's as we begin to, to kind of wrap up here, uh, that was one of the, the, the questions I wanted to ask is, what does the future hold for Oakland? What are some of the trends in recent decades that you see continuing? What are some of, of the, the, the new movements or new changes that you see in this city? And is the city at all recognizable as the same city from the end of the 19th century? And at the risk of, of forcing and make a prediction here, will it be recognizable at all here at the end of the 21st century uh, uh, in, in a few decades hence?
2: Yeah, look... No city should be recognizable over a hundred year period or even a fifty year period because because cities change they they that is the inherent nature of cities that populations are going to come in and go out, and cities are going to change they uh, they're an exa- you know they are capitalism right in operation, and capitalism nothing and in a situation of capitalism, nothing stays the same so cities do change, and we have to be aware of that, and we have to not hope that you know We preserve certain areas forever because it's never going to happen. That much said, within that kind of change, if you look at, let's say, Oakland 100 years ago and now, the areas that have changed the least are the upper-class areas. The upper-class residential areas have not changed all that much. The working-class districts have changed dramatically. They, they, They were built up, along nearby factories. And in that time, in that hundred year period, the factories have closed. The neighborhoods have been deprived of investment because of governmental actions, which we call redlining, you know, which is withholding investment from areas that had people of you know, mixed populations, not just all white. And so those, those neighborhoods went through, you know, they went through a complete decline and then later a revival, but a revival through gentrification, through, through, you know, first artists came in and then later the artists were followed by, you know, middle class and upper middle class professionals who saw the, you know, the former industrial working class areas as opportunities, you know, to, to live in the inner, you know, to live in, in an inner city area. So they've, they've, they've changed in that direction. Um, so the, the change is happening. what, what, what I think uh, what, what I could what I, if I were to predict what's going to happen in Oakland in the next, let's say, 25 years, and it's hard to do this, right? Because like if we had been speaking four years ago before the pandemic, would we have, would we have been talking about the decline of office, you know, empl- office employment? We wouldn't have imagined that that would happen so rapidly and so extensively. So who knows what's going to happen in these next 25 years? It's really, really hard to predict. But the direction Oakland seems to be going in is, and I would, I would say is as a middle class, upper middle class suburb of, of Silicon Valley and San Francisco. It's going to have a moderate level of office employment downtown. It's never going to be as large as the suburban office parks or San Francisco downtown, but that will probably grow a little bit. But office employment in general, as we've been talking about, is not growing. So I I, I think that's gonna stay fairly static. Resident, there's a tremendous housing demand. So there are going to be a lot more housing units built in Oakland. The, the Probably 80% of them are going to be market rate at least, and hopefully 20 or more percent will be affordable. So you're going you're to have Oakland as a, as a more populous city. I think it'll, the population will rise to about half a million probably within the next 10 to 20 years easily. Uh, it'll have more people. It'll have about the same level of office employment. And it will have many fewer institutions as we talked about so it will be less independent and have less of a kind of identity of itself as a kind of generator of initiatives uh because you went, you know if you think about Oakland culturally speaking you know if 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 there aren't places to live for artists and musicians and you know craftspeople and firemen you know and you know it's not going to be that kind of diverse city that it always has been you know if, if it's so expensive at the same time, if it doesn't have the kind of institutions that were built by the elites, you know, the, the muse, you know museums and sports facilities, et cetera, it's not going to have that either. So it, it sounds like it seems to me that it's heading toward a future where it has a larger population. The population that is not affluent is going to be nervous and struggling to keep their foothold in the town, as because it's so expensive, uh, and it won't have that kind of, in, you know, that kind of homegrown. It won't have the either the kind of homegrown quality it had over, the, let's say, the last 50 years, with its diversity of both people and what they do, right? From from you know. You know, a lot of, for instance, the Burning Man sculptures and art community live in Oakland. You know, you're just not going to have that if it's so expensive, if it gets more and more expensive. I don't see how those people will survive. They'll have to go to places that are, you know, less expensive, and at the same time, without the philanthropic, without the philanthropic elite, you know, the Oakland Museum is going to stay static. It's not really going to change much. It's not going to expand. And you're not going to get new institutions like that. In fact, you, you, like I mentioned, we, we, it's, it's remarkable. We lost three colleges you know, and, and, uh, and a newspaper. And you know, it, it's, it's rather dramatic, those institutional losses. So that's what I see the, the future being.
1: And as we begin to, to, to wrap up here, I always like to ask my guests to uh, and kind of put themselves in the shoes of someone reading their book and thinking back on this book a couple of years down the line. And what would you hope a reader would remember or take away from your book thinking back on it uh, uh, a couple of years hence?
2: I think, I think whether they're from Oakland and the East Bay or whether they're from any other American city, the book is a real primer in understanding how cities grow. And decline and grow again. So, if you're interested in cities, this is a it will, this will be a lasting set of lessons about how cities grow and how they develop. I think it's also a great book for people who are interested in where they are in their locality. Like one of the you know we we hear a lot about you know understanding you know beginning from where you are, and and I think what the, what Hellatown does is really encourage people to look very closely at their surroundings and it's a kind of helps them do that because in order to look at closely at your surroundings you need to understand how they came about to an extent you don't see all the evidence with your eyes and you don't get as curious unless you start developing a set of questions as to what why is that there and why is that not there and how did that happen and a book like Hellatown really gives you Uh, access to a lot of questions about cities and about your neighborhoods and about the place you live. And it encourages you to ask more questions and then go out into, you know, whether you live in Minneapolis or Atlanta, wherever, to look at the place you live and start to ask, well, why did this happen? Why is this the way it is? And I want to know more. And then hopefully you'll get involved in, you know, in in, in, in charting that changing city.
1: That, that's a that's a really good point. I mean, so much of this story is about Oakland as, you know, it's an Oakland story, of course, it's Oakland as a unique place, the things that are only happening in Oakland, but also so much of it is also about what's happening in other cities around the United States during the same time period. So, so much of, as you're saying just just now, so many of the questions that this book raises can be applied to any other city or any other place in the United States. I know that I'll certainly be thinking about the Twin Cities differently after reading your book.
2: Right. Thank you.
1: And then for my last question, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they are working on next. Um, this book has been out for a couple years now at this point. So is there another project that you've been working on in the interim?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book now, um, tentatively titled Jewish geography. And it's it's more of a it's a it's a slash memoir travel book, uh, looking at how the looking at the places that my parents lived in, and then migrated to, and myself as well. So it start, you know, it has aspects. They, you know, both of my parents are from from Poland. The communities they lived in, the Jewish communities, were utterly destroyed during the Holocaust. Most people were killed. My parents survived in concentration camps and and uh, underground, and then made it to the United States and lived in, you know inner city neighborhoods and then eventually american suburbia and and so it's a book about that it's a book about that series of places and you know the places back of the traditional places in poland the places of annihilation the places of rebirth in the united states and how they a a lot about myself and my father and how and it leads to how i got interested in cities and looking at at various types of urban place so that's that That's
1: so, That sounds like a fantastic book. What a what a great idea for 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 a book this kind of partial memoir, partial kind of history of place idea. I really like that.
2: Yeah. That's the next project.
1: Dr. Mitchell Schwarzer is Professor Emeritus of History of Art and Visual Culture at California College of the Arts, and his new book is Hellatown: Oakland's History of Development and Disruption, which came out in 2021 with the University of California Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mitchell.
2: Thank you, it was a pleasure.